Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. We're going to continue on in our series in the book of Philippians. This is the week two, and we're going to jump right in. There's three things that I really believe that the Lord kind of kind of stirred up in me to share with us this week that I think is going to challenge us in our, in our relationship and walk with him. So there's three points. Number one on your notes. Number one, voluntary slavery. Voluntary slavery. I told you we we're going to come out swinging. Go, go, go into the deep end. Um, this may sound like an oxymoron, a moron, like these things don't go together. How can someone be voluntarily a slave? It's, you know, throughout human history, slavery has been people capturing other people and putting them into the bonds of servitude against their will. And so how can we talk about voluntary slavery? Well, I want to look at the very first verse of Philippians chapter one, and let's look at what it says, because there's a major truth here for us. This letter from Paul and Timothy, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Why in the world would they use that particular word? Well, this word in the original language doesn't have the same context as our Americanized Western culture. This word is in the original language language is doulos, which is Greek, and there's three definitions I want to give uh, give you real quick so we can get some deeper understanding on this word. So the first definition, it's a metaphor, one who gives himself up to another uh, to another's will. One who gives himself up to another's will. The second definition for your notes, those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. The third one is devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. This definition of the word slave, this doulos, is far different from our American word slave and our American idea of slavery. Why? Because that first one is a metaphor and it says uh, one who gives himself up. That particular phrase, one who gives himself up, implies a voluntary action. Next line in your notes. It implies a voluntary action. Uh, a couple of months ago, um, somewhere in southern Arizona, I think, there was two convicts who escaped from a prison and were on the run for several days, maybe like a week or two. And eventually, they didn't have any money, they didn't have where to go, they didn't have where to sleep, they didn't have any food to eat, and so they didn't really have a chance to make it. And so once the, the, the investigators and the police started to surround them, they realized, man, I could keep fighting, I can keep running, I can keep pushing back, or I can give myself up. That idea of giving myself up was theirs to choose. It was a voluntary action. They could have kept running. They could have kept fighting. They could have dug you know, more holes or trenches or how they were hiding from people. But what they did was they voluntarily gave themselves up. And this is what Paul and Timothy are doing here. We could honestly stop the service right here and do a prayerful self-evaluation. 
Why? Because how many of us have done that? Jesus is our ultimate example, but we have some men here who have done some things that we need to follow their lead on. And I wrote in your notes, I really want you to keep your notes this week because I wrote a, reflect, a few reflection questions for us to go through later this week. And the first reflection question in your notes is this, have we voluntarily submitted ourselves to advance the cause of Christ regardless of our own interest? Have we ever voluntarily our own will, our own desire, have we done it by our own choice, submitted ourselves to advance the cause of Christ regardless of our own interest? I'm asking that because um, uh, I don't think it's going to be an easy answer. I don't think and expect that when you ask yourself this question, you go, oh yeah, I've done that. Next. No. Because if we're honest, every one of us in this room, if we're honest, it's going to be a tough question to answer. How many times have I voluntarily laid my own will down to choose the will of the Father? How many times have I pushed aside my own interest so that I can fulfill his interest? I told you last week that if you come to RCC for very long, you're going to be encouraged, pushed, prodded, and surrounded by positive peer pressure to move from the elementary things of God into a, a deeper walk of a disciple. <clears throat> One of, I want to take a look at, at somebody in the Old Testament real quick who volunteered for his task. One of the greatest prophets in the Bible, next line in your notes, Isaiah, volunteered for his assignment. Voluntary. He chose to take it up. So there's a well-known, so I want to take a, a, a look at a few similarities between Isaiah and Paul. It seems like you got this prophet and this apostle. How in the world would these guys, Old Testament, New Testament, be similar? I want to take a look at exactly how they're similar. You probably have, have heard this passage if you've been in church for any length of time, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4. There's a, um, it starts with this beautiful and glorious picture that Isaiah sees in a vision. I'm going to read it out loud for us here. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I, Isaiah, saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. What a picture, right? This is an amazing, beautiful, awe-inspiring picture. And when I would hear this passage read as a child in church, inevitably there'd be four or five people in the back go, Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. You know what I mean? Like I grew up in the South, so that's where the accent come from. So just give me some grace on that. But like they, they would always give that big old hearty, you know, um, um, the denominational church, Amen. Like, oh yes, the earth is filled with his glory. And then they kind of just think about it and go, yes, it's nice. It's a great picture. 
But that's not what Isaiah did. When Isaiah sees this picture, this vision, the holiness of Almighty God overwhelms him. It's the next line in your notes. It overwhelms him, and he has this huge realization at that moment. What is his realization? Let's continue reading in verse 5. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt has been removed and your sins are forgiven. The next line in your notes, the first thing, the first thing Isaiah did upon realizing that he was a sinful man in the presence of a holy God was shout amen. Nope. Was to be like, that's right. Nope. Was to fall on his face and repent because the holiness of God, the purity of that moment overran him in a way where he realized I cannot stand even in his presence because I am so wicked and evil and, and sinful. I can't even stand here in the presence of this holy God. So he fell on his face and repented and received forgiveness for his sins. See, Isaiah had a real encounter with God. He repented of his sin. He changed his ways and immediately, next line in your notes, volunteered for the task God presented. So get this picture of this magnificent throne that God is sitting on and showing everybody. His glory is filling the earth. These, these six-winged cher uh, cherubim or seraphim are flying around the, the just angels of, of crying out, holy, holy, holy. He repents. God forgives him of his sin. And the very next thing that happens, Isaiah 6, 8, is a scripture you're probably also familiar with. Then I, Isaiah, heard the Lord saying, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here am I, send me. We like the part of the whole earth is filled with the glory of God and the God that, that we serve and love. He's got this high exalted place and we're like, yeah, he wins. He's over everything. And we like the part that says, well, you know, who's going to go for me? I'll go, God. We like all that. But we don't necessarily like the progression of repentance that happens when we compare our life to the holiness of God Almighty. How in the world are we talking about Philippians and you all went back to Isaiah? How in the world does this connect? Well, remember, Isaiah had a real encounter with God, repented of his sin, changed his ways, and volunteered for the task God repented. And guess what? Paul had a real encounter with God on the way to Damascus when he was knocked off his horse. He repented of his sins, he changed his ways, and he volunteered for the task God presented to him. The same thing that happened to Isaiah with a little bit different details, but the principles also happened to Paul. And guess what? If you are in this room and you are a believer in Christ, then that same thing has happened to you. 
you have had a realization that, oh my goodness, God is holy. He is, I am sinful. He is the only way that I can get rid of this sin is through faith in Christ. You've repented and changed your ways. And now are we going to move to the level of discipleship? And are we going to voluntarily answer his call? Next reflection question in your notes is, have we volunteered to get involved with extending or advancing the Lord's cause even when it was out of our comfort zone? Have we ever done that? Again, if you're honest with yourself, it's going to be a hard question to answer. Point number two, immediate change, immediate change. Philippians 1, we, we just, all that from the first verse. Let's read verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Every time I, Paul, think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you, for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard about him until now. If you were here last week and you saw the map that we showed of, of Paul's second missionary journey on the screen, then you know that uh, Paul went to Philippi in his, on his second missionary journey, and that happened around the year 50 AD. This letter of Philippians that Paul is writing to that church is written 10 years after his initial visit. So he, he, he visits there in 50 AD, doesn't write this until probably close to 60 AD. There's a 10-year gap, and there's something about that gap that blows my mind, and it was this. How long was Paul in Philippi? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, a, a year and a half ago, two years ago, when we kind of started the process of starting this church. And, and the, the process of talking to people and spreading the word and witnessing to people and, 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 and trying to get everything going here. But and I'm thinking, man, that's been a year and a half for us. And we're, you know, COVID and all the, you know, the pandemic hits and we're in one building and leaving it and going to another one and all the, all the back and forth things that we've had to navigate just an hour time together. And I'm thinking, man, how long was Paul there to get this church going that lasted 10 years? These guys are still together and growing and, and serving the Lord 10 years after he's been there. The next line of your notes, Paul was only in the city of Philippi for a few days. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 and 12. This is a, a, a Paul and Silas and Timothy talking. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Samothrace. And the next day, we, we landed in Neapolis. From there, we reached Philippi, a major city of that district in Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. In that short period of time, three things happened. And they're in your notes. People became believers and were baptized. In that short period of time, the church of Philippi was established. And in that short period of time, believers immediately began to spread the gospel. 
Matt, how do you know that? Let's read Acts chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. On the Sabbath day, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank <clears throat> where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her husband were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. She heard the gospel by the riverbank once, once, became a believer at that moment, went and got her family, told them the message of Christ, and then all of them went and got baptized as, as believers in Christ right then. There was an immediate change. We hear many times that God takes his time in fulfilling his word. This is true. This is true. But that is not the only way he works. There are moments, next on your notes, when God creates an immediate change. Nina and I last year got a chance to sit with a, a man who runs a, um, he was part of our ministry program as a younger man. And um, he's still younger than me, so I guess I can still call him younger. But we got to sit with him while he was here in the United States for a few weeks. He runs a ministry in Asia that reaches out to people to try to spread the gospel in very hard parts of the world. Every nation in Asia, he himself, his family, or his ministry organization has been in so that they could witness the people in the hardest places on earth to talk about Christ. He told us some amazing stories about a farmer that he, that he met and talked to and he was working outside and he was harvesting the field and he was working kind of in a plantations sort of environment. And he tells him about the gospel. And what happens when he tells him about the gospel? The man puts his, puts his uh, utensil down, his shovel down, and he looks at him and they began to have a conversation about Christ. And that man at that moment instantly became a believer. But it took him a minute to process what was going on in his head because, because becoming a Christian there is far different than becoming one here. Oh, it's a believer's life. It's a life where we're changed from the inside out, where our, where our heart is given to Christ and transformed and we're becoming new creature. But the environment that he has to now live in immediately changes. When someone becomes a believer in that part of the world, they fully realize three things that are, in your, uh, that are here in your notes. A, their life is now in danger. Letter B. The next thing they realize is that they are to gather with other believers or establish a church. And the third thing is their new life goal is to tell others about Christ. This man who was, uh, who was a few minutes ago that he was talking to was not a believer, becomes a believer, and then automatically he is now charged with the task 
of gathering with other people, talking about the Bible, talking about Christ, and then developing a church and spreading the word. Most churches in that area are no bigger than five people. And they continue meeting together for the purpose of evangelizing the world. I got three more reflection questions I want to ask. And the first one is this, and it's, this one was real personal to me. Do we pray for immediate change? When we pray, are we praying for an immediate change? Well, of course, Matt, everybody wants something to happen right now. Yeah, I know you want it to happen right now, but do we go boldly before the throne of grace and ask God for the change to happen? This hit me really hard this week, this question, because if I'm honest, I have to say that, am I going to always pray for immediate change? Nope. Why don't I? Because there are moments where I'm all right there. God, I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to move. And I'm asking you, God, if there's any way you cannot wait but to move right now, right now, like that song that we just sang. God, can you please move right now? I get to that point, and right before I go over the edge and ask him big to do something big, I say, but, you know, if you don't do it, you know, I know you're in control, and my boldness goes away, and I back out. And I don't really ask why, because I got two fears inside of me. Number one, that I'll look dumb. I ask God for all this and, you know, maybe I prayed out loud or prayed with Nina or something and I'm asking God for something and it doesn't happen immediately and I look dumb. Or the second thing I worry about is my own doubt. I prayed for something to happen right now. God, I'm asking for it right now. But I give that qualifier. If it doesn't, I know you're in control because I don't want the questions and the thoughts to start looping over in my own head. Man, is God really listening to you? Does your prayer even really matter? The things that you're asking him, are they falling on deaf ears? And that doubt begins to circle in my own head and my own heart and puts me in a position where I then have to go back and choose again, do I believe him or not? If we pray for immediate change, my friends, we are going to have to have faith, a real faith, a real faith that boldly approaches the throne of God. Second question, are we ready for immediate change? We would, uh, all of us, you know, what I'm praying for, of course, I would want something to happen right away. But if that thing that happened changed your heart right now, are you prepared to drop everything? Like that man who was in the field with his shovel and take up the cause of Christ that he laid before you. And the third thing is, are we ready for the immediate change of those we love? What happens if you had a, a relative who wanted to go to medical school and they wanted to be a doctor and they're five and a half years into an eight-year medical graduate program and at five and a half years, they go, oh my goodness, the Lord just dealt with me last night. 
I'm quitting the medicine thing and I'm going to go and be a missionary somewhere. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go reach people in this part of the world and drops it and tells us. Would we tell him, bro, you're five and a half years deep. Just finish it out. Or we look at him and say, are you sure that the Lord spoke to you? Let's pray about this. And if he did, I am behind you 100%. Leave everything to follow him. Matt, that doesn't make any logical sense. He should finish his degree. Right, mine and your understanding would say that. I would almost want to tell him, just finish it so you could have medical, you know, uh, medical training to wherever you're going. I would want to push him down that road, but that's my thoughts. And scripture tells us that my thoughts are not his thoughts. My ways are not his ways. Let me bring this a little bit closer to home for all the parents that are in the room. What happens if your teenager graduates high school, submits their life fully to Christ, and immediately volunteers to drop their plans for college or university? They drop all their plans. They've worked hard. They've got scholarship offers. They've done all the work to try to get accepted. Would if they drop those plans, dive headfirst into learning a new language, sell everything they have, which is probably not much, but they sell everything they have and they put all of their focus into moving to a foreign country where they're out of your perceived safe control. Are you ready to let them do that? This seems like it's going really quick, man. You made all these plans for years. You know, my, my, you're my daughter or my niece, man. You've done all this stuff and you've laid out all these plans here. This happened really quick. Yes, because why? There can be an immediate change. I talked to a young married couple last year. I was invited by a friend of mine to speak at his young adults event. And um, I met this couple and she was super pregnant. Like they were really young and it was their first child and she looked like she had a Poor girl had a basketball shoved up under her shirt. You know, she was ready to go at any moment, you know, like to give birth at any moment. And um, we talked there and such great, nice people had a great heart, great spirit about them. And as they walked away, my friend said, um, he's got a whole bunch of education and she's got an entrepreneurial bend with her family. And these guys are really set up to start their life high up on the, on the lifestyle food chain. Like they were ready to, you know, be a, like upper middle class just to walk into the like walk into their life as a family together, right? <clears throat> um, there, yeah, you can turn it off. Thank you. Um, uh, they were ready to walk uh, forward in that together. The only problem is they decided not to pursue their lifestyle. They were so burdened for the cause of Christ that even they, the, though they could afford this nicer head start for their family and their, and their new child, they moved into a low-income housing trailer park because they saw the need for the light of the gospel to be present there. They're going to raise their child in this low-income housing environment because... The cause of Christ outshined their need to live a temporary, earthly, lavish lifestyle. 
I hear stories like that myself apart from anything else and go, would I do that? Would I do that? When I was young and my son was young and my, my wife was, we were newly married, what I did was I would consider it, but would I do that now? I hear stories like that and feel such a strong sense of conviction that I wonder if God put something crazy sacrificial in front of me, would I do it? Have I become too comfortable in the most prosperous nation on earth in the history of mankind? Has it dulled me to the point where I wouldn't do something radical for him? Number three, last point before we wrap up here today is this. Our obedient work will continue. Our obedient work will continue. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I want you to notice what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that he's confident that you will see how your work ends. He's not promising people who obeyed, obeyed God. He's not promising people who obeyed God that they would see the end result of their obedience. What he is saying is that he is certain that God will complete the full work all the way until Jesus returns. Are these people still alive? That he's writing to? Almost 2,000 years ago? No, the answer is no, they're not still alive. They better not be. <laughs> they're not still alive. But the work that they started then is still ongoing today. Same way the snowball effect happens when it rolls down a hill. They started the small snowball and today it is running downhill because of theirs and people like theirs obedience. There is a larger purpose behind every one of our obedient actions. It's a larger purpose. Why? And how do I know that? 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8. This is still Paul writing to a different group of believers. Here's what he says. After all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your heart and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It is not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God made the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. See, last week we discussed this point that we are all playing a small role in God's overall purpose. The next line in your notes. We are all playing a small role in God's overall purpose. But don't discount the ripple effect that that small role has in years 
and generations to come. We are carrying forward the Christian work that believers who have passed away first started. We are carrying forward the Christian work that believers who have passed away started. Our obedience to Christ may be answering a prayer now of someone who passed away before seeing their prayer fulfilled. Think about that for a second. When you're obedient at this point and you follow the direction of the Lord, you could unknowingly be answering the prayer of someone who prayed 1, 2, 5, 10, 25, 50 years ago. We may never know the number of prayers that are answered in the moment we witness to someone and lead them to Christ. If you sit with someone and you feel like God opened the door for me to talk to this person and we were sitting here at work and we went to lunch and I told them about the Lord and man, this guy is really interested. He, he, he's praying. He's, he's wanting to come to church. He wants to give his life to Christ. I'm trying to help him uh, understand the basic fundamentals of how to give your life to Jesus and, and faith and confession and all this. And it's very simple, but I'm trying to help him through it. You have no clue how many nights a grandmother or a grandfather wet the carpet in their room with their tears, weeping, asking God to orchestrate some scenario where that young man or young woman would listen to the gospel. There is no way to tell how many nights a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a friend has wept and cried out to Almighty God that their, that their loved one, their friend, that somebody they knew, a family member, whoever it is, would come to Christ or come back to Him and you walk up unbeknownst that any of that's ever happening and you could be the answer to the prayer that someone else has prayed decades ago because our obedience at the moment is caused by God. It has an impact from the past of people who prayed and forward uh, forward in a ripple effect way that will impact the kingdom of God long past when we are gone. The truth is that most of us in the room, including me and Nina, We'll never see the full impact of Roots Community Church until we get to heaven. What do you mean? You're not trying to make an impact now? Oh no, we're trying to make an impact now. But we will never see the full impact, the ripple effect that happens until we get to eternity. Why? Because there's going to come a time where I can't do this anymore. It's not soon. But there's going to come a time. Where I can't do it, and someone else is God's gonna raise someone else up. We're gonna pass them the reins, and they're gonna continue on with the work we started there. There's a high probability, high probability, not a guaranteed 100%, but there's a high probability that any church you drive by, walk by, or know of in this city, high probability that the person that's pastoring there right now did not plant that church. They're working as a continuation of the cause and purpose of Christ 
that was started by someone else. Every single person, every single person who, every, every single one of us who is obedient to God hears the message of Christ. Why? Because someone else did the work that carried the gospel to us. Oh, God's behind all of it. He's orchestrating all of it. But there is a work that happened before we realized our need for Christ that we have benefited from and that our obedience will continue long past us. Parents, your children will carry on your spiritual legacy long after you're gone. That scripture in Philippians uh, verse 6 that we just read confirms that the work we have done for Christ will continue on until it's ultimately fulfilled when Christ returns. What we've talked about tonight are, is volunteering our will. Voluntarily setting aside what we want for the interest of the gospel. We've talked about how God can make immediate change, but that's not the only way he works, but he can work that way. And then we've also talked about how his work, is, our, our obedient work is going to continue on. I want you to notice something very important before we close. It's the last line in your notes. God's purpose is active in both the immediate and the long term. His purpose is active in both the immediate and the long term. God is orchestrating all of this without worry or ability to fail. So when you put your trust in him, you obey his direction. When he gives you something in front, he puts something in front of you that you were supposed to, 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 to do, it opens a door that you're supposed to walk through. He puts a burden of something that you're supposed to accomplish on, on your heart. You have no reason to worry or fear because he has never failed, he has never lost, and he has never worried for a microsecond. He's in control. His purposes will be fulfilled both today and every day in the future. And he invites us to participate in that. He invites us to join with him and participate in that call and cause and purpose. As I sat there today and, and thought about this, and as I was going through these notes again um, earlier this afternoon, and I was just going back through and reading these scriptures, I was just overwhelmed by this last statement. Is what an honor to be counted worthy to participate in a small portion of God's purpose. What an honor that is to be entrusted with something, to be prepared for something, to have something pulled out of you that is not of God so that what, is, what, what he wants to have in that space grow so that you can do, so that I can do, so that we can do what he calls us to do. What an honor to have that opportunity. The God who created everything has a massive plan that he wants us 
He wants me, someone who has been wicked, who has been a man of unclean lips, someone who has, has wandered from him, who has looked at him in the face and walked the other direction, and through his grace and mercy reconciled me to him. He wants that guy? The guy who knew better and still did wrong? He wants that guy to participate with him? It is wildly undeserved. But it is a great honor. 